Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and it's been a fascinating few weeks in the world of particle physics. CERN's LHCb experiment and Fermilab's muon G-2 experiment have been pushing at the edges of the standard model. There have been hints of mysterious particles, new physics and possibly even a new unknown force of nature. We'll hear from scientists from both the experiments. And first, here's Jessica Esquivel from Fermilab to explain how physicists are looking to expand upon the standard model of particle physics, which is currently the best theory we have to describe the behaviour of the basic building blocks of the universe. I am a postdoc working at Fermilab, and I'm working on the muon G-2 experiment. Uh, So the standard model is... um, what I like to say is uh, our way of cataloging all of the building blocks in the universe. And the first attempt at doing this is actually the periodic table of elements. Um, and uh, when, you, when you look at the periodic table, back in the day, there used to be empty boxes of you know, uh, elements that we think should go in this space, that we've theorized should go here, but we haven't seen them yet. Um, so you can... In- imagine the standard model as the same way, is that this is what we've seen up until now, um, but we know that it's missing things. Uh, One of the big things is gravity, right? Like we know gravity exists, we feel it in our everyday lives, but we haven't been able to find a particle or a force um, that is associated with this, this feeling of gravity. So that's like a glaring hole in our standard model that we are every day you're (laughs) trying to poke holes in it to to fill right another big one is the fact that while the standard model catalogs all of the building blocks that we know of in the universe that we can see you know um it only accounts for five percent of what's out there (laughs) the rest of that is dark matter and dark energy um so like we're missing a lot (laughs) um so uh, what, you know, G minus two is doing is trying to um, test a lot of the theories that are already out there, right? Um, uh, whether or not we see a particle that's called potentially a graviton, whether or not there's a dark matter particle or dark matter particles, uh, whether or not we have um, heavier electrons, right? So right now we know we have the electron and I'm studying the muon, which is heavier, you know, the heavier cousin, but there's also a a particle called the tau, which is even bigger and badder and heavier than the electrons and the muons. And at this moment in time, we only think there's these three generations of matter, right? But is there more? Like, why is it only three? Um, Do we have uh, another Higgs floating around. So there's just a lot of questions and a lot of theory um, and, and math that theoretical physicists play around with to build these you know, ideas up. And what we as experimental physicists do is build experiments to try and test these. Um, and yeah, right now we're, the tension between the standard model, which is a theory um, and you know has been tested and, and, and has held up (laughs) with regards to many, many experiments that are trying to like poke holes in it. And our experiment, G minus two, is still standing. Um, But what's really cool about what's going on is that 
we as experimentalists are trying to reduce the error on our measurement uh, by, you know, increasing the amount of uh, statistics or reducing any sort of uncertainties we have with the way we take these measurements. And the theory side is doing the same thing, which is awesome. So what we're seeing is that the uncertainties are uh, re getting reduced on both ends. So it's just like kind of like a race in that regard. And then we're also just, you know, holding our breath to see if that tension is going to stay um, as we start reducing those uncertainties. Much more from Jessica and this intriguing result from the Muon G-2 experiment at Fermilab later in the podcast. But in March 2021, just a couple of weeks before the results from Fermilab, CERN's LHCb experiment also suggested the possibility of new physics. Here's Patrick Koppenberg. I'm uh, working for the uh, National Particle Physics Laboratory in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, but I'm based at CERN in Geneva, where I'm uh, working on the LHCb experiment. There's one of the four big experiments at the LHC. The B stands for the beauty quark, that some people call the bottom quark. We like to call it beauty, it sounds nicer. And uh, we have an experiment that is optimized for finding particles containing this quark. And we make lots of measurements with that, some of which are quite exciting. They certainly are, but for those of us who aren't sort of well-versed in the world of particle physics, can you give us a quick primer on quarks and things? We're all made of quarks. Atoms are made of protons and neutrons with electrons circling around in the, in the protons and in the neutrons there are three quarks. Now these are light quarks, we call up and down, but there are also four other quarks that exist but are unstable, which means that they disappear after some time. And they are called strange, charm, beauty and top. And uh, the, uh, the beauty is the one we're studying the most, but we also have plenty of results about the charm quark. The other ones are a bit too light for us. So you're only looking at the heavy ones and the beauty ones? Yes, the, the, the people who study beauty quarks call it beauty. The people for whom the B quark is a background, they call it bottom. So it depends on whether you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> and you're using it to look for new physics, but why do we need new physics? What's wrong with the standard model? Uh, there, there, there are pieces that are missing in the in the theory of particle physics that we call the the standard model. So, well, first of all, it doesn't talk to gravitation at all. So that's that's a fundamental problem. And then we don't we we are studying uh, differences between matter and antimatter. That's actually one of the major uh, goals of the LHCb experiment. So particles and antiparticles. For for every particles, when you have quarks, you 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 also have you also have antiquarks that are just the same, except that their electric charge is is reversed. Uh, they don't exist on Earth because when a quark meets an antiquark, they annihilate. So immediately you get lots of energy out, and uh, and nothing remains. Uh, but we but we can create them and produce them and and study them until they. Uh, until they disappear. And something must have happened at the very early stages of the universe that explains why we have a universe made of matter and why, where all the antimatter has gone. Because if you start with a lot of energy and you produce particles, you 
produce as much particles as antiparticles, matter as antimatter. So where has this antimatter gone? And we're looking for a process that could explain how it disappeared. And we haven't found it yet. We have found processes that that can generate differences between matter and antimatter. We measure that quite well, but that's much too small to, to explain why the universe is there. And you found some interesting results recently. Yes. So we've, we are studying uh, very rare processes that involve this uh, bee or beauty quark. Uh, <clears throat> these... Uh, the particles containing that quark, they, you, you would never find a quark alone. You would always find it in a particle, like the, the up and down quarks are in a proton. So we study particles containing these uh, these quarks, and we wait for them to decay. That means to transform into something lighter. And uh, we are most interested in the rarest processes, the ones that happen one times in a million. Because that's where you have a potential of having some no unknown new physics that would compete with the physics we already know. In the in the processes that are very common, then we know what's ha what's happening. And even if there's a perturbation at the one millionth level, we wouldn't be able to measure it. But if your process is once in a million to start with, then if there's another once in a million that competes with it, then you would notice that there's something going on. And something is going on. The most exciting result we had recently was comparing the 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 decay of of this B quark going to a strange quark and then to electrons or to muons. There there's as the quarks there are six of them there is also six leptons. We don't know why it's six and six, but that's how it is. And there is the electrons that we'll know, but then there's the big brother which is the muon and then the even bigger brother which is the tau. And then there are also three neutrinos that uh, that we are not sensitive to, so I won't talk about those. And uh, and so, in principle, the physics as we know it tells us that the likelihood of a B quark going to an S quark and then to electrons is exactly the same as it going to an S quark and uh, and to um, uh, muons. And we measured this these two processes and we found that the ratio of the two is not one as expected but uh, more like 0.85 uh, so we have fewer fewer muons than electrons and we don't know why and uh, the the uncertainty on that number so this difference of 15 percent that we're missing is five percent so it's not yet precise enough for re to really draw conclusions but uh, but it's a strong hint that there may be something going on that we do not understand. So you, you say maybe something going on, and there is this uncertainty. Can you just tell me how it is that you calculate the certainty or uncertainty of these things? Yes, we, we have a kind of uh, tradition in particle physics is that uh, we, we're, whenever we measure something, we also compute the uncertainty on that measurement. So here it's 0.85 plus minus 0.05. And uh, if that deviate, and and then we compute the how far away we are from the expectation. So the expectation is one. So uh, we are at uh, three times the uncertainty away from the expectation. So that's this 0.15 divided by 0.05, and that gives us a, and we call that three sigma. So we are three sigma. Sigma is the is is the uncertainty. So we are three sigma away from uh, what we. Uh, 
what we expect. And in tra in the traditional jargon of particle physics, we call that an evidence. When it's larger than three sigma, it's an evidence. When it's larger than five sigma, it's an observation. So usually you enter the textbooks when you you have an observation. So, so far it's something that I would say, it's interesting, it's something to follow up. We need more data and then if the if the value stays as it is and the uncertainty goes down with more data, then uh, we might be onto something. And when can we expect that more data? We are in the middle of an upgrade of the experiment. So we've been dismantling most of it and uh, we are rebuilding uh, big chunks of the experiment so that we could take more data at a given moment in time, the, 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 what we call the luminosity, the number of collisions per second in the accelerator will go up and we have to cope with that. And that will allow us to collect more data per year, and uh, which is a good thing, but uh, of course we had to adapt the detector for that. So we should be done by middle of next year and then slowly the, uh, the LHC, the accelerator, will start up again and uh, we'll take start collecting data but uh, it's uh, that's the moment when we start collecting data until we have as much data as we've collected in the last 10 years it will take another couple of years at least and uh, and it's a difficult analysis so we will it will take quite some time until we are able to update this uh, this measurement maybe at the five years level and later in the podcast we're going to be hearing from people who are involved in the other big particle physics story at the moment from Fermilab. Does that speak to the same areas that you're talking about here? It's a completely different measurement, but it's also something that has to do deal with muons. And uh, there's a there's a whole set of measurements that are uh, that are strange, not quite as we expect. None of which is really very significant it's all in the in this three-ish sigma region but uh, but all these measurements they tend to point towards the same direction that means some some new physics some new force that we don't know that uh, that could explain them all and uh, and this measurement g minus two the uh, anomalous uh, 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 magnetic moment of the muon is uh, is one of those that could be explained this way but uh, i'm not going to explain how this measurement is done this is completely different phys physics but there are new physics model that can models that can explain our our anomalies and this anomaly uh, there there are more measurements that are a bit bizarre on the on the lhcb side so uh, so they they could also be explained by uh, uh, by this new force, if that's if that's the reason. So when we're talking about new physics and new forces, they're not new forces and new physics in the universe. They're just it's just new to us, isn't it? So why is it that we haven't been able to discover this before? Probably because they're very heavy particles. We, the the first force we uh, we we feel are are the our gravity. Gravity is a completely different animal. We don't really deal with gravity. And then uh, electromagnetism. We, we we know of the electric interaction, and that's because the it's mediated by the photon. The photon is the is the particle that carries electromagnetism, and it's it's light. It has no mass. So 
it happens all the time and if you if you look for the weak interaction what which which is what causes the b quark to decay and which is what causes radioactive decays uh, this is produced by particles that are quite heavy kind of 100 times the mass of a proton so so it, it, these are pro because of this mass this is unlikely to happen it's uh, it's it's quantum effects that violate conservation of energy for a very short moment of time which is hard to hard to imagine but heisenberg tells us it's possible and indeed it's happening and uh, if it wasn't happening we wouldn't be here to talk about it so it's something that is needed to create matter as we know it but it's uh, it's something that is much rarer and this is why it's called the weak interaction so now if you take a particle that's even 10 or 100 times heavier then it's even more difficult to for it to to affect us and to to have uh, to produce processes that we can that we can measure but maybe it had a very important role at the beginning of the universe we don't know mm. and if this result is verified you know if it gets to five sigma it becomes an observation where does that then fit in the story of particle physics i, I i'm actually setting the threshold for myself higher than that first of all to be really excited because uh so far it's a uh, this difference between muons and electrons is a measurement it's actually not just one measurement it's several measurements but all from the same experiment and i would like another experiment to uh, to confirm that so if we get five sigma and uh, suppose the bell 2 experiment that is has just started in japan and uh, is a completely different experiment but measuring the same the same kind of processes if if we both see that then that means that we're onto something and and then it's a it's a revolution in in particle physics a a step in the understanding of uh, of forces of nature similar to what we call the no november revolution in 1974 when the charm quark was uh, was observed that was a particle that was kind of predicted by some models but nobody was really sure whether these models were correct and now these models we call it the standard model of particle physics so it's it's what explains everything but first you had to observe this uh, this particle and then of course what you want to understand is you have a deviation but you don't know what produces it and ideally you would like to if there's a new force there's a there's a force carrier and so there's a particle that exists and that plays this role that one can produce in a in in a collider so i'd like to see this particle in a collider but uh, but it may be that it's so heavy that we will not be able to do that in the in the foreseeable future so when we're talking about new forces and new particles d d does theory tell us enough about what they might be for us to start thinking about names for them so far we have gravity we have the electromagnetic interaction that does electricity and magnetism that is somehow linked to the weak interaction that produces radioactive decays but that's force number three and then there's the strong interaction that holds quarks together and explains why the proton is not exploding in the because they're charged particles that should repel each other but the strong force is holding them together so uh so these are the four the four we know but if there's if there's something more then that would be number five there are several p 
potential uh, explanations. The ones that are the kind of simplest to uh, to to explain all these anomalies are, would be a particle that that behaves like the weak interaction, but that is more heavy. So that would be kind of a new form of weak interaction, but uh, uh, much heavier. And uh, the weak interaction is is acting in the same way on uh, uh, on all the electrons and muons and taus, and so this new one wouldn't. So that would be a kind of sort of weak interaction. So that's one possibility. Another possibility would be something completely new, which is called leptoquarks. So some, and that would be interesting. That would be a particle that that connects quarks to to leptons, so muons, electrons, etc. And and that that maybe could explain why we have three, uh, well, six of each, which is which is a mystery. There's no well, we we know that we need six quarks to understand to explain some differences between uh, uh, matter and antimatter. But uh, but why three? Why not four? Where does it come from? We have no idea. So it could be that it's going in this in, in this direction. So the particle, if that's that's it, then the particle has a name. It's called the leptoquark. But how the interaction is called, then we would really need to understand uh, how it behaves. We are going to take more data, but we haven't fully analyzed the data we have. So there are plenty of processes that are still being studied. So it may be that there are still uh, surprises that are just waiting for us to find them in the data we already have. Just like at CERN, Fermilab's experiments are a collaboration between a huge number of scientists and engineers. A Zoom call to release the results of the muon G-2 experiment in April this year had somewhere in the region of 150 scientists waiting to find out just what they'd discovered. One of them was Becky Chislett. So I'm a lecturer at University College London. My main research focus is on muons, specifically at the G-2 and Mu-2 experiments at Fermilab. The G-2 experiment looks at muons, which are essentially heavy electrons, 200 times heavier than an electron. And it tries to measure to a very high precision, so we're talking less than one part per million, how a muon interacts with a magnetic field. And the way you do that is when a muon's placed in a magnetic field, it kind of acts like a tiny bar magnet um, due to an intrinsic property that it has called spin. And so when it's placed in a magnetic field, it causes this spin to rotate around. Um, and if we can measure the speed at which this rotates around, then we can see the speed of that rotation determines how it's interacting with the magnetic field or the strength of the interaction with the magnetic field. And where does the G-2 experiment fit within the history of particle physics experiments? There's been a really long history of measuring this property um, and it's actually led to quite a lot of interesting discoveries. So the first experiments were actually conducted at CERN not to quite such high precision, but these did lead to us realising um, how additional particles contribute to this the strength of this interaction of the muon with the magnetic field. All the other particles in the standard model contribute towards that. And gradually, as the theoretical prediction has become more and more precise, so has the experimental measurement, 
And that's why it's such an interesting quantity, because it provides um, deep insight into all the different interactions that are involved in our understanding of how the universe works. The measurement that was made before this was actually 20 years ago. And this was at Brookhaven National Laboratory. Um, and that started the, the hints towards um, there potentially being some new physics involved in this quantity. Also on that Zoom call was Jessica Esquivel. The biggest component of our experiment is the magnet. Um, and the magnet uh, has a very interesting story. It's 50 feet in diameter, and it was actually in New York um, during, you know, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. Um, and uh, the Brookhaven National um, Laboratory G-2 experiment uh, actually ran what we, what we did, um, but they had limitations with regards to... Um, statistics and the intensity of uh, the beam, the muons that, that we're going through. So, um, but the really interesting thing is that they saw this discrepancy, this hint of new physics, but they couldn't really dig any deeper. So what we did was take the magnet from New York <laughs> and um, ship it by barge to uh, Chicago, uh, mainly because the magnet, the 50 foot diameter magnet is made up of pretty much one wire. And if you snap that wire, the magnetic field is kaput. It's just gone. Uh, so it couldn't, it couldn't wobble, you know, very much. So it needed to have a very, very stable journey to us. Um, so that's the biggest component. It's the most expensive and that's why we recycled it. Mark Lancaster from the University of Manchester is one of the lead authors on the paper and has been involved from early on in the instrumentation as part of the experiment. It's instrumented on the in interior with these, these detectors which detect when the positive muons decay to positrons and we also have these, these other detectors which we built in the UK which detects where these decays actually actually happen and how the beam moves around when it goes around the ring. There are many, many devices connected to the magnetic field as well. We have to measure the magnetic field all the time and monitor its changes. So there's a vast array of instrumentation attached to it and the magnet itself is a superconducting magnet so it has to be cooled to liquid helium temperatures so there's a lot of cryogenic infrastructure. This beam also has to be in essentially a, a very, very good vacuum because we've got high voltage systems, which if the vacuum isn't very good, it would spark. So we focus the beam with a 20,000 volt, 20, volt quadrupole, uh, electric quadrupole. So that needs a very good vacuum. And we also, when the beam comes into the ring, it's not exactly on the right trajectory. So we have to give it a little kick. So that needs 160,000 volts in 100 nanoseconds, which is not straightforward. So there's there's a vast array of instrumentation, and that's why we have a lot of you know we've had a lot of help from engineers, uh, mostly at Fermilab, but also in the UK and Italy, help help helping get this thing to work reliably and 24/7. And what we actually do is shoot muons into it, a lot, a lot of muons, and muons are the plus size version or the heavier, you know, cousin of the electron. Um, and they like to spin or wobble um, in a magnetic field. So there's a whole bunch of different components that go around in it. But the basic, 
you know, a thing that happens is that we shoot muons in and we watch them wobble. And a weird quantum mechanical um, property is that when you're in a vacuum, you would expect that it's empty, but in reality, it isn't. It's filled with this roiling, bubbling quantum foam of virtual particles that pop in and out of existence. Um, and theoretical physicists know this, we know this, um, and they have, you know, um, uh, they have uh, knowledge of how these virtual particles will affect the way the muon wobbles. Um, and it essentially really looking at how the muons interact in this magnetic field, we can peer into essentially all of the particles in existence, known and unknown. Um, and by taking a really, really precise measurement, we can see whether or not a new virtual particle just popped into you know, the space. Um, and our run one results showed that there is an even larger hint than back in the 90s that, that this may actually be the case. Um, we don't label something as new physics until we get to a level called five sigma. Um, and that's essentially just saying that we are very, very, very sure that this isn't just a random fluctuation. And right now we're at 4.2 sigma. So, and that's just with the data from our first run, which that run, we, we call it, we were still, um, we were still tuning things. So it's really, really exciting that we have two more runs already in the can and we're almost finished with our run four. So it's a very exciting time. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is. But just to step back a moment, can you just explain to me why it's called muon G minus two? I told you that <clears throat> um, the muon likes to gyrate or, you know, wobble in a magnetic field. And we call this the precession frequency. And um, for a long time, um, we thought that this was two, right? And if we were just looking at like, you know, the, the, the classical realm and not the quantum realm, it is, it is just two. But we're interested in taking that even further. We're trying to look into like the electromagnetic uh, space and, and then the hadronic space um, to try and peer into um, all of the different virtual particles that are popping in. So G minus two, it's, it's literally an equation where we're um, looking at the discrepancy between what we know is two at like the surface level and all of the other stuff that we're poking and prodding. Um, so it, it's essentially how the, the muon wobbles uh, aside from what we already know it does. Here's Becky Chislett again. What we've measured um, is a value that is, does not match up with uh, the theoretical prediction. Um, so there's a slight discrepancy between the two um, and the chances of what we've measured being a statistical fluke is one in 40,000. So this isn't quite to the level of the gold standard in particle physics, which needs it to be one in 1 1.7 million. 
Um, so we need to analyse more data in order to get to that point. But it does provide a hint that maybe what they saw at Brookhaven um, is a hint of new physics. Um, and potentially there is something out there that we need to kind of chase up and, and see what what it actually is. You can do that with the G minus two experiment or do you need more things? So the G minus two experiment in itself could set, could say that there is some new interaction um, or new particle out there that we haven't discovered, but it can't in itself tell you exactly what that is. And so you need more experiments to kind of investigate um, the various different theories out there that could explain it. Um, so, you know, the LHC can also um, push down on certain areas of phase space um, and also the neutrino experiments. I think the combination of all the experiments that we have at the moment will help to narrow down um, the kind of windows where this new particle or force could be. Can you tell me about the Zoom call where you all found out about the result? We had this massive Zoom call, which was when we all voted to agree that we did want to unblind and the analysis, we were all confident in the analysis um, and that, um, you know, there was nothing we could we w- would change because once we were unblinded, then that's the result, right? Um, so we had these envelopes which contain the number um, that only two people in the whole world knew up to that point. Um, And these envelopes got opened on video and they showed the number on screen. Um, And so the two numbers agreed, which was good. Uh, And then (laughs) this one person shared their screen and put the number in and the result appeared in front of everyone. Um, So I wouldn't have liked to be that guy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it was a really exciting moment, um, but also quite nerve wracking, really. Um, but it's quite nice that it was done on Zoom because it meant everyone could be there. It was um, in the afternoon here, about 4pm, so it was the morning in America, um, but it meant that it was a great time for us to celebrate with a glass of champagne. Over in America, the situation for Jessica was somewhat different. I think we were all shocked because deep down, physicists are pessimists. Like, I heard that Physicists are the only ones that are excited to be proven wrong. <laughs> so, like, I, I don't think that I expected the tension to still hold up between theory and experiment. So it was very, like, whoa, kind of shocking. Um, but then at the same time, my wife was actually getting a pretty serious um, dental surgery at the same time so I was literally in the dentist's office with my laptop and headphones like waiting <laughs> for the results so there, there was a lot going mm. on at, at that time Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> but it was <laughs> it was very exciting and I I mean yeah it happened and we literally watched on zoom um them put in that fudge factor into you know a python script and out popped the plot so it was very kind of instantaneous and you know um exciting and then for about i don't know an hour or two after we just held on on the zoom call and just talked about how awesome it was to be in this collaboration and how amazing it was to be working with such 
a awesome group of people to get to where we were. It was it was it was a career defining moment for sure. For many of the people involved in the experiment, it has been a long journey to get to this point. Here's Mark Lancaster again. I've been involved in the experiment for quite a time. The UK, I sort of instigated the the UK getting involved in the experiment. I think it was back in 2013 and the UK had a big role in the experiment. Uh, the tracker, the tracking detectors were built at University of Liverpool and the, a lot of the data acquisition systems were built at, at UCL. So we've had a big role in it from 2013. And then in 2018, I got to be elected one of the co-spokespeople of the experiment. So the sort of two people that run the experiment. So I was at the sharp end for two years. The analysis of the data took us, you know, the best part of three years after we took the data. So it was quite a long uh, road to to get to the results. So more, it was it was relief that it was over, and I think pride as well, actually, because it's such a big team effort amongst quite a disparate bunch of people. Really, you've got physicists, you've got engineers, you've got computer scientists, you've got the PhD students doing the vast majority of the work. They're probably doing eighty percent of the work, and you've got some old guys like me chipping in and so it's it's a it's it's an incredible team effort so really it's a it's a sort of pride thing that it actually all came together there's also relief in all these things because you you weren't blind to this thing and of course you have no idea where this number is going to come out because the the blinding offset was 10 times bigger than the previous discrepancy or could have been 10 times bigger so we had no idea where this number was going to lie and I guess there's always something at the back of your head when you think, oh, my God, have we done something stupid? And you get an absolutely crazy number, which, of course, we didn't get, right? So, uh, yeah, so I think there's, there's the relief that it's that it's it's come out on the scale, so, so to speak, I think. I mean, and, and, and relief that it was over. And then, a, yeah, a great sense of satisfaction that we'd managed to, to get there and bring all these things together and... You know, there were so many different things that we had to check and triple check and go over and, you know, many, many things that you're, you're doing to make sure this thing is correct. And so when it's over, it's, it's yeah, it's a great sense of relief. There's, there's, there's always a problem with some of these things is deciding when to stop because you can always do something slightly better, you know, and but... In this in this regard, our measurement is dominated by the statistical uncertainty and not the systematic uncertainty. So at some point, we took a decision that we wouldn't look at this effect any closer because we already knew its uncertainty was way, way below our statistical uncertainty. And so we didn't need to know it. To, you know, we didn't need to know that uncertainty any better. So in some ways, that was a blessing. But I think now when we go on to analyze more data, we'll have a, we've got a data set which is at least four times bigger we will start having more difficult decisions of when to stop looking at particular effects and you know and how how well we try to quantify their uncertainties over the years in particle physics we've seen effects come and go you know we've seen them announced and then you know, once we go through the data a bit further we find that they they disappear can you just talk me through what you've done to check this one what we what we did is we had independent teams measuring all the various numbers which you know are multiplied together in the end to give the final number and so we had several completely independent teams and they would have a different approach to how they would analyze the data and we kept them working independently in the respect that Everybody had this overall blind offset which we revealed from the envelope, but also these individual groups 
were given software offsets, which also blinded their numbers. So we couldn't have group A couldn't go to group B and go, well, are you getting 27 for this number? We're getting 22. Well, that's a little bit odd. You know, and then you, you know, you we're trying to remove unconscious bias and people going, well, it must be right if we've both got the same number. You know, that's obviously a dangerous uh, way to proceed. So we kept all these groups independent as well until very close to the end. It's obviously then there was an important cross-check when we'd internally decided that we think we'd done all the checks that we could do. One of the important checks was to see that all these independent groups agreed, which, which, they, which they did. And that would, of course, if they hadn't agreed, then we would have gone back and tried to obviously try to work out why, that, why they disagreed. But like I say, you want to do that as late as possible in the process so you don't bring in confirmation biases and, and things like that. So that we did that pretty late in, in the analysis, that level of unblinding it. So uh, that, that was an important thing in checking things and allowing people to develop different ways of, of doing things. And even at the level of doing it in different computing languages, you know, some people use Python, some people use C++ or whatever, but just allowing people to use different tools and different ways of analyzing the data is, is important and let people do it differently and, and make mistakes as well. So here's an experiment which could fundamentally change our understanding of physics, give us new physics. And I wanted to know more about the people who had brought us this. Here's Jessica Esquivel again. I've been at Fermilab for, I think, going on five-ish years now. Uh, before I was a postdoc, I was a graduate student, and I worked on an experiment called Microboon, and it's a neutrino detector. Uh, and most of the work I did there was software-related. So I developed a machine learning algorithm to identify different particle signatures in our detector, similar to how Facebook has an algorithm that puts a box around faces that it finds in a photo. Um, and instead of you know training on features of a face, I trained on features of different neutrino argon interactions. And then I switched gears completely <laughs> and jumped the neutrino ship into um, muons and pre precision science. And one of the first things that I did was a hardware job. So um, we have a subsystem that we call the kicker and it essentially does just that. It kicks muons onto uh, the correct orbit so that we can store them in our magnet and watch them dance. Um, and uh, after the first run, we realized that we weren't kicking as hard as we needed to. So my first task as a postdoc was to completely disassemble this system, which is critical for us um, on the G-2 uh, collaboration, and fix the pieces and put it back together. So that really did dust off my um, electrical engineering uh, degree from you know, undergrad, uh, I, you know, was soldering circuit boards and covered in castor oil because there were shards of standoffs in our big old bloom lines, which are just huge cylindrical pipes that we fill with um, castor oil. Uh, so it was a messy job <laughs> and it was definitely something that I wasn't um, used to, but it was really exciting. It was a great way to 
learn very quickly because I was literally knee deep in all of these parts um, and learning, you know, intimately how how the experiment works. So, yeah, it was it was a culture shock. <laughs> so, how does young Mark in Blackpool end up looking at possible new forces, new particles? In the universe, many people I meet always had this, you know, always wanted to be physicists or whatever. And I don't, I, I don't think I sort of fell into doing physics in some ways. At school, I was, my favourite subjects were maths and chemistry, and I did physics by a process of elimination because I, I think I realised that maths at university would be much too mathematical for me, and I think I realised at some level that many of the questions in chemistry were answered in physics. So I split the difference and decided to do physics. And then I didn't really enjoy physics, actually, at university, particularly until, until my... I found it fairly dry, if I'm honest. And then it was only my third year when I had a great uh, teacher who was at the Rutherford Labs, uh, Professor David Saxon, who, did, who taught me particle physics. And he was a researcher. And so I got a sense of what it was like to do research. And he was you know, doing great research at the time. And I thought, this is really interesting. And... I then I didn't I didn't know what I wanted to do and I applied for science jobs and didn't know, you know, what sort of jobs to even apply for. And everybody doing those jobs was a doctor, was a had a PhD. So I thought, oh well, I'll just try and do a PhD. And since I started doing the PhD, I just really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the challenge of every day being different, not knowing what the answers were. And then I've not really looked back since then, really, in terms of doing it because I just I enjoy it. We've covered the Large Hadron Collider and the work at CERN a few times on the podcast including travelling to CERN to see the experiment but we haven't or certainly I haven't brought you anything recorded at Fermilab. With the pandemic of course there was never any thought that I might go there but Jessica told me what it's like to work at Fermilab this place which was founded of course by Robert Wilson famous for his work on the Manhattan Project but also as a sculptor and an architect. I think Fermilab is really unique in the way it was created uh, because uh, Robert Wilson was also a very artsy person. So he saw this vision of, you know, cutting edge science happening in tandem with the beauty of nature. So when you go on Fermilab, like, on site, um, we have, you know, a large grassland area. Um, we have geese that like take over <laughs> during the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the really funny things is that in our, um, you know, safety handbook, there used to be a section on how to deal with geese as you're walking, you know, <laughs> to and from different buildings, which I thought it was just hilarious. Uh, <laughs> we have one of the largest um, bison herd on site. Um, and then there's just art, statues and sculptures planted kind of all throughout the the area and the building that I usually work on which is called Wilson Hall it's just what's the word I'm looking for like stoic it's big 15 you know 15 feet 15 floors um it's shaped like 
the shape of a pie, <laughs> like the, you know, 3.14. <laughs> oh, cool. Um, yeah. It has yeah. an amazing atrium with um, plants, like a, you know, like a garden right in the middle. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it's just really, really cool that we're literally on the bleeding edge of society's knowledge. Like we're pushing the boundaries of what we know and we're surrounded by what we're studying, right? Which is the universe, which is nature. So it's kind of like prophetic in that way. It certainly has been a fascinating time in particle physics, and it sounds like it could get even more interesting as time goes on and they delve into that data. I know that we said that we we're going to be covering artificial intelligence in this episode of the podcast, but I'm sure you'll forgive us for concentrating on these fascinating new pieces of physics. And we will return to the topic of artificial intelligence soon, I promise. But thank you very much to Patrick Koppenberg, Mark Lancaster, Jessica Esquivel and Becky Chislett for talking to me for this episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.